Hi everyone. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the shooting that happened yesterday in Nashville, Tennessee at the Christian Covenant Elementary School. At the time of recording, it's March 29th, 2023, and the shooting just happened yesterday. Six human beings lost their lives at the hand of an incredibly selfish mass murderer, three of whom were dedicated public servants, and three of whom were nine-year-old kids. There's a lot that can be said about crimes that happen in real life or true crime, about the value of being vigilant, and knowing that any of the crimes I talk about on this show can really happen to anyone. Even the most esteemed scholars don't know why people murder, kidnap, or sexually abuse others, and they don't always know how to prevent it either. But I think you and I, and likely all of those same scholars, know exactly why mass shootings continue to happen in the United States. Like most of the mass shootings that have happened, the shooter legally purchased all of their firearms, and reportedly they had no trouble doing it either. The widespread availability of assault-style weapons in the United States is a public health emergency. It's a crisis. And there are enormous amounts of literature that have come out that point to that same availability of guns as the sole determinant for why the United States experiences so many mass shootings in a year. It has nothing to do with the case I'm going to talk about, and I live very far away from where it happened. And yet, despite both of those things being true, this kind of violence tears giant gaping holes into the fabrics of society, and the ripples from it are felt internationally. I haven't been able to stop thinking about the families of the people who were murdered that day, and the bravery of the police who went in and subdued the shooter in, I think it was under 14 minutes. Although the Metro Nashville Police Department handled the situation with bravery, they shouldn't have had to. Mass shootings, especially in schools, especially targeted at nine-year-old children, are entirely preventable, and make no mistake about it. Today, we remember Cynthia Peak, who was 61, Catherine Kuntz, who was 60, Mike Hill, who was also 61, Evelyn Dickus, Haley Scruggs, and William Kinney, who were all nine years old. The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. My name is Allison, and if I sound sick, it's because I am. (laughs) I'm just getting over some sort of cold or flu, but I'm on the mend, and I didn't want to leave you hanging especially not with the case that I have planned out for you today. Today, we're going to be talking about an unsolved murder that has had Canadians speculating for over five years now. Usually, when I'm doing research into unsolved cases, a narrative begins to emerge that tugs on my own reasoning, making me begin to question or suspect a certain person or group. At the very least, there's usually a reasonably believable motive that someone can follow and might lead to a person or network of people who might be responsible for the crime. But in the case of Barry and Honey Sherman, billionaires of Toronto's affluent North York area who were found murdered in their home on December 15th of 2017, there are endless possible motives that many different people could have had to want to kill them, and each of them are equally viable. All of these motives lead to potential theories. All of these theories have numerous people connected to them who, at one point or another, have all been made to look guilty at the hands of a journalist. Of all the different theories in this case, it's possible to spin some sort of reasonable explanation out of all of them. So, even though I'm sick, and even though I'm sure you can probably tell by my voice, I really wanted to get this episode out to you, because I'm so curious to know what you guys think about this case, and what you guys think happened here. We're going to talk about all these theories today. Maybe by the end of it, I'll have a clearer idea of what I think happened. 
As of right now, I don't have the slightest clue. But with that, we have no time to waste, so let's jump right in. The multi-million dollar Sherman household at 50 Old Colony Road in North York, Toronto, was a sprawling but quote-unquote overstuffed abode, as described by Geraldine Sherman in an article for Toronto Life. The house itself was sleek, it was modern, but the inside was decorated with lots of leather furniture, glossy stone floors, and a spiral staircase. It was full of art collected over the years by Barry and Honey Sherman, and had both an outdoor and an indoor pool. From what I saw of old housing market listings, most of the homes in this area of North York seem to be pretty similar. They all resemble what was inside the Sherman house, and most of the amenities are pretty consistent. They all are luxury, wine cellars and libraries, multiple parking spots, big, beautiful, sometimes gaudy kitchens, and plenty of space to do whatever wealthy people do in their spare time. But unlike the other properties on Old Colony Road, the Sherman house has now been demolished. If you look at the address on Google Maps, you can see nothing but green space, sandwiched between two other mansions on either side. Google Street View only shows a fence draped in a black tarp covering the perimeter with signs warning of surveillance. I don't know when these Google Maps satellite images were taken and I'm not sure if it still looks this way. I live close, but not close enough to see it myself. What I can say though, is the lot being empty is a far cry from what it used to be. A mansion full of life, Sherman kids, and bursting at the seams with displays of wealth. The Sherman family amassed their wealth from the audacious business practices of Barry Sherman, who was the founder and CEO of Apotex, a vastly successful generic pharmaceutical manufacturer based here in Canada. From the ground up, Barry Sherman built Apotex into an international empire. At the time of his death, reports from Forbes and Canadian Business estimated Barry's own personal net worth to be anywhere from $4.35 billion to $4.77 billion. This made Barry Sherman either number 12 or number 15 on the list of Canada's most wealthy men. But unlike many billionaires in North America, Barry wasn't just necessarily born into extreme wealth. It's not like he was just entirely lucky. Barry was also very, very smart. And this was true both in academics and also in business. With regards to business, he also amassed a reputation of being pretty vicious and doing anything he possibly had to to protect his company. Barry Sherman was born in 1942 in Toronto to parents Herbert and Sarah Sherman, who both died in the 90s. His parents watched as their son Barry headed off to the University of Toronto's engineering science program at the age of only 16. He did this after spending all of his free time in high school, aside from getting good grades, awards, and honors, working for his uncle, Louis Winter, who was the owner of Empire Laboratories. Barry would oversee operations at Empire Labs at a young age, which was a big deal in general, but considering Empire Labs was one of Canada's largest manufacturers of several widely used medications, including the broad-spectrum antibiotic doxycycline, Barry had taken on a big responsibility. Barry Sherman stayed with Empire Labs during his undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto, and would eventually go on to earn his PhD in astrophysics from MIT. Oh yeah, and he received the Governor General's Award for his thesis. No big deal or anything. Barry Sherman certainly had both a bright mind and a bright future ahead of him, and in 1967, the perfect opportunity to expand his horizons revealed itself to him. Two years earlier in 1965, Barry's uncle, Louis Winter, the owner of Empire Labs, suddenly passed away from an aneurysm. His wife, Beverly, died only 17 days later after a difficult battle with leukemia. 
Beverly and Lewis Winter had four young children who, in the span of 17 days, lost both of their parents. These children were all minors, but they were the rightful heirs to Empire Labs. However, Barry Sherman, having worked there and having overseen operations since being a teenager, was of age and had enough motivation and capacity to take over the company. He had even been able to demonstrate his ability to run the entire company at the drop of a hat. When Beverly was diagnosed with cancer, Lewis and her went on one last vacation together and asked Barry to oversee business while they were gone, which he reportedly had no trouble with. Before she died, after her husband, Beverly Winter knew this about Barry, and in a conversation with Barry after the death of her husband, Beverly told him that should the executors and herself wish, he would take over Empire Labs to protect it and its value for the sake of the Winter children. In return, after Beverly's death, although it didn't happen right away, Barry and a business partner would eventually purchase the entire rights to Empire Labs when the opportunity arose. However, the Winter Estate didn't know that Beverly had asked Barry to leave all of the children a 5% stake each in the company, totaling 20%, a lump sum share that none of the Winter children knew about either. Despite no final decision being made on what to do about Empire Labs if Beverly died, which we know she did, Barry took it upon himself after purchasing the company to uphold her end of the informal bargain, protecting Empire Labs and preserving its value. But he didn't uphold his end, and the Winter children had no idea that they were entitled to any sort of financial compensation. After purchasing Empire Labs with his business partner Joel Uster, an old friend from high school in 1967, the two started to make some pretty decent money. Then, in 1970, Barry Sherman invested in New York's Bar Laboratories with partners in the United States, eventually becoming the largest shareholder of Bar Labs and serving as the president. Bar Labs would eventually win the first rights ever to manufacture generic versions of Prozac, a name-brand antidepressant drug in the year 2000. Despite already engaging in some shady business practices, Barry Sherman was doing pretty well for himself, and would eventually go on to sell Empire Labs to International Chemical and Nuclear of California in 1972. Barry's profits from this sale and other ventures he was involved in allowed him enough financial leeway to found Apotex in 1973 with former Empire Labs personnel before incorporating it in 1974. This decision, like the others that were made about Empire Labs, was done without consultation of Lewis and Beverly's children, who, again, by Beverly's understanding before she passed, were supposed to be 20% shareholders. Any profits made by Barry off the sale of the company were completely missed out by the orphaned children, and nobody was any the wiser until many, many years later. For Barry, it didn't matter. By 2016, Apotex employed over 10,000 people and was one of Canada's largest drug manufacturers, selling over 260 medicinal products in over 100 countries. Some sources I read say that Apotex's average annual revenue is somewhere in the $1.5 billion range, and the company was outcompeting brand name pharmaceuticals everywhere. Evidently, although the money was good and the business was booming, being a big shot in big pharma didn't come without issue for Barry Sherman, but we'll get there. I haven't even told you about Honey yet. The woman who would soon be known as Honey Sherman was born to two Polish Holocaust survivors in Austria in 1947. During her life in Toronto, she was very social and grew into lots of great friendships. Friends who share fond memories of Honey caring for them if they had airplane anxiety, and remember her as always expressing generosity and gratitude. Honey was also a graduate of the University of Toronto. She got her Bachelor's of Arts in 1969, and a Bachelor's of Education the year after. Like her husband, she was very smart and she was also well-educated, but she decided to make a life for herself, continuing her generosity through her occupation. Her day job was spearheading the philanthropy that both her and her husband Barry were known for. Her dedication to community service was widely recognized, 
and she even won the Arbor Award in 2003 for her volunteerism. But before she was a prominent community figure in Toronto, she met Barry in 1970 after a friend or a family member, I'm not sure, had set them up. Barry at this point would have just been beginning his investment journey with Bar Labs, but the couple soon got married the year after in 1971. The couple would go on to have four children in total, Jonathan, Lauren, Alexandra, and Kaylin, all of which still speak openly and fondly about their mother. In the 80s, Barry and Honey Sherman started building their home in North York, the one on Old Colony Road, spending about $2.3 million to have it just the way they wanted it. From my perspective, it certainly seems like a fairy tale romance. After the couple met, they were quickly on their way to success, both in business and as community leaders. In the decade following, they had children, and they were starting to build their dream home. Even though we're speaking in a Canadian context here, it kind of sounds like Barry and Honey Sherman were living the quote-unquote American dream. But there was a big obstacle in their way, and the $2.3 million that the couple had invested into their old Colony Road home didn't quite turn out the way they wanted it to. And with a price tag like that, for all intents and purposes, it should have. Barry and Honey would end up in court, suing multiple companies and people involved in the construction and planning of their home. As we'll learn, Barry especially was no stranger to litigation and didn't shy away from taking up his issues in civil court. This is just only one early example, but we'll get to all that. As I had mentioned, Honey Sherman took on the role of spearheading the philanthropic work that the couple would eventually become famous for. While Barry was busy making business deals, Honey was serving on the boards of Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and using her married-in money to donate and organize charity. Over the course of their marriage, and really all thanks to Honey, the couple would become hallmarks of the Toronto Jewish community and would end up donating over $50 million to the United Jewish Appeal. They would also, of course through Apotex, send $50 million worth of medicine and relief to disaster zones around the world from 2007 onwards. Back at home in Toronto, they funded entire additions to the Geriatric Baycrest Centre and other Toronto area community centres targeted at multiple different groups. Through this kind of work, the Shermans eventually, deservingly, earned themselves a reputation of generosity. They were recognized and commended by Canadian politicians at all levels of government. Many people regarded the Shermans as outstanding citizens who dedicated their lives to doing right by their community. With the wealth they had amassed, they were committed to financially supporting projects to uplift the well-being of others. But when the Shermans were found murdered in their home in 2017, while all of the politicians and public figures who adored the Shermans expressed their grief and sorrow, there were certainly others who were quietly reflecting on how karma must have come not a second too late for Barry Sherman. As I had mentioned, Barry Sherman's business practices were audacious to say the least. In his personal and Apotex life, he was regarded as vicious, among other things. To some, Honey Sherman was no better, just with less power. Barry had no issue taking his personal slights into civil courtrooms. One report I read talks about how Barry wasn't even looking to get money out of all of those people that he brought to court. He just wanted them to spend their own, force them into a headache, so to speak. Barry took issues to court just because he could, because he could afford to be in court for as long as he needed to be, but his opponents, not so sure. Despite all I've said about how the Shermans were generous with their money and kind to their community, as you'll learn, one of the potential motives in the murder, which I haven't even told you about yet, is that Barry crossed one too many people, or maybe just one wrong person. One wrong person who just couldn't shake the feeling of being slighted by Barry Sherman. In December of 2017, the Sherman House at 50 Old Colony Road in North York, Toronto, was put up for sale for $6.9 million. Everything to sell the house was already in place, 
Photographs had been taken of the inside of the home and had been published with the listing, and the Shermans found themselves out of the house quite often not only for work as usual, but also because of frequent showings. The week of December 15th that year was no exception. On December 13th, Barry and Honey were both at the Apotex offices in meetings for business, but also with architects. They were trying to organize their next living arrangements. That evening, Honey had left the office just before 5 p.m., and Barry left sometime later with his last recorded activity in the Apotex office being an email sent between 6.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. It's unclear, at least to me, why this window of time is so large, given emails are time-stamped, but regardless, nobody thought anything of the day was unusual, and nobody suspected anything was out of the ordinary either, not the Sherman's children or the Apotex employees, when the couple was completely unheard from the next day, on December 14th. That email Barry sent, in the giant two-hour window of time, was the very last of the billionaire businessman's life. Barry and Honey Sherman were busy people. At this time in their lives, they had regular Apotex and charity to take care of, in addition to selling their existing house and redesigning a new one. They were a busy couple with busy schedules, and it wasn't unbelievable to imagine that they would be off the grid for a day to some, possibly in meetings or focus groups with others. So December 14th came and went, without any sign of Barry or Honey Sherman, at least not from the night before, when they each left the Apotex offices. The day after, on December 15th, the couple's housekeeper and gardener arrived around 8.30 a.m. to conduct their usual business. Although neither of them could find Barry or Honey around the house while they were working, they also didn't think it was out of the ordinary. The housekeeper and the gardener collectively worked along the outside, on the first floor, and on the second floor of the multi-million dollar mansion, as per usual. At 10.30 a.m., two hours after they started, a real estate agent showed up with an assistant and a couple who were interested in purchasing the home. While the housekeeper and gardener were working, and while Barry and Honey Sherman were effectively missing, despite no one noticing yet, it was time for a showing. Now, if you've ever sold a house, you'll know that it's pretty normal that the real estate agent didn't suspect anything when Barry and Honey weren't there. Showings don't often happen when the current occupant is sitting around watching TV. Not that I can imagine Barry and Honey were big TV watchers anyways. The housekeeper, the gardener, and the real estate agent all probably assumed that Barry and Honey were at Apotex, and Apotex employees likely assumed that they were doing other business or doing stuff at the house they were trying to sell. Without cross-communications between these groups that really would have no reason to communicate, neither party would have known that Barry and Honey Sherman at this time were already dead. The house was listed by real estate agent Judy Gottlieb, but she was away on either business or vacation, so it was another agent that showed up to the house in her place with her assistant. I'm not sure who this agent is. But regardless, the show must go on, and after showing the first floor and second floor, the agent, assistant, and the couple viewing the home decided to take their tour into the basement area of the old Colony Road mansion. They got down there around 11 a.m., and I'm sure the couple were quite excited to see the full-sized indoor pool, which is evidently a major feature of this house. But as the group descended down the stairs into the basement, the agent's assistant opened the door to the pool area and reportedly immediately recoiled, being visibly shaken by whatever was in there. What the assistant had seen were the bodies of Barry and Honey Sherman, with their backs facing the pool itself, in a semi-seated position, and something tied around each of their necks. Barry and Honey Sherman were clearly victims of a violent crime within their own home, and even just looking at the scene for a second, that was quite obvious. After what was only I can assume to be a split second of witnessing 75-year-old Barry Sherman and 70-year-old Honey Sherman semi-seated on the floor of their indoor pool, dead, the assistant turned around and quickly ushered the clients touring the home away from what was in the pool room. Reportedly, the assistant was able to think quick on their feet 
and made up an excuse about how the pool was temporarily off-limits. I'm not sure how they managed to keep their composure in a moment like that, but regardless they did, before quickly but calmly going up to the housekeeper who was working on a different floor of the home and telling her what was found. The assistant called the original agent who was away, Judy Gottlieb, and eventually the housekeeper placed a phone call to 911. Toronto police were en route to the Sherman household by 11.44 a.m. It's unclear to me if the families or children of Barry and Honey Sherman, or even the Apotex employees, were notified of the deaths before the media got wind of the murders. But the story began circulating online as little as four hours after the police were on their way to the home. Upon arrival to the scene at 50 Old Colony Road, Toronto police decided pretty quickly that they'd need to keep the inner workings of the investigation mostly under wraps, likely due to the prominence of Barry and Honey Sherman in the community. Regarding details of the investigation, there were some things that were released right away and some things we've had to learn in hindsight, but regardless, this is approximately the sum of the information as we know now. After being removed from the home, Autopsies conducted on Barry and Honey Sherman over the following weekend on the 16th and 17th of December, done by Dr. Michael Pickup with the Office of the Chief Coroner in Northern Toronto, revealed that the couple both died from ligature neck compression. The results also showed that the couple might have been bound with something, as they had broken skin on their wrists consistent with abrasions seen from restraints. Reportedly, though, there was nothing found at the scene that police thought could be responsible for these injuries, at least not in the immediate area of the bodies, and there's nothing visible in any of the photographs. Details from reports by reporter Kevin Donovan with the Toronto Star outline many components of this case that it's quite possible we might not otherwise know. For example, his reporting indicated that Barry and Honey might also have been positioned, and their final resting position was eerily similar to a pair of human-sized sculptures they had in the home. I'm not sure how much weight this may carry, and it's entirely possible, actually more than likely, that Toronto police have been able to rule in or rule out the detail of positioning these bodies, but regardless, I'm just here to tell you everything I know. What I know from Kevin Donovan is that these human-sized sculptures are made of trash and are multicolored. I'm not sure what area of the house they were in, but reportedly they were a gift given to the couple that had been on display in their home for decades. The sculpture consists of two humanoid-like figures, and the male sculpture is seated left of the female, just as Barry and Honey were when they were found. Similarly, the male sculpture's left leg is crossed over its right, and Barry's legs were also crossed, but the other way around, with his right crossed over his left. Other details about the scene include the fact that Honey's cell phone, a phone that she never used, was found in a nearby powder room. People speculate that she might have spotted the intruder or intruders and ran to call for help before being overtaken, but we don't know. In addition, a pile of scattered documents related to the home inspection and sale of their house was also found on the floor just outside of the garage door entrance in addition to a pair of gloves on the way down into the basement pool area. It's possible that Barry Sherman might have been walking around his home carrying these items when he was blitzed, it's possible that there was more than one person at work here to be able to get that done. In addition, there was no immediate signs of forced entry into the home, but it's possible that whoever broke in the house didn't need to force their way in. It's reported that a window in the basement was left open in a room that was being freshly painted and probably smelled that way, and it was left open likely to air it out. In addition, a door leading outside from the basement area was left unlocked when police arrived. Although I couldn't find confirmation anywhere, likely because police have not confirmed anything, it's possible that someone entered through the unlocked window and exited through the basement door. But we have to wonder about the paint in the room, and the intruder would have had to be pretty careful not to get any from the walls on their clothes or anywhere in the house. Not knowing exactly what happened and not knowing details in this case is a pretty common theme here. And similarly, if the intruder did get some paint on them or leave some sort of fiber evidence or a trail of paint behind, which is possible if that's how they got in, police definitely already know about it and we certainly don't. 
Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star also speculates that whoever committed the murders is someone with at least some knowledge of the house's layout, so much so that they would have been able to get in and out of the house pretty easily. Typically, a statement like this usually means that whoever committed the crime was close enough to the victim to have been inside of their home before. But personally, I don't think it's a pretty far-fetched idea to assume that this person might have been able to get to know the layout of the house without ever stepping foot inside. Only a week or so prior, Barry and Honey Sherman had listed their house up for sale with photos of the entire layout publicly available. If someone had it out for the Shermans, or possibly saw the opportunity and decided to take it, the planning part would have been made easier because of that. In my opinion, it seems the most likely that Barry Sherman was blitzed at the top of the staircase leading down into the basement and subsequently the pool area, and the intruder or intruders had no issue finding their way out of the house into the backyard through that door that was left unlocked, which it's widely speculated that's exactly what they did, and they made their exit through neighboring yards. Although we don't know a lot of the details in this case, and it's very unclear what information police have about the murderers, the one thing that's certainly clear is the cause of death. Barry and Honey Sherman were definitely strangled with a ligature. But similarly to many of the details in this case, although the cause of death was defined, even the manner of death was questionable for quite some time. The Toronto Police Services Homicide Squad was called in, and initially within the first few days and weeks, the media was reporting that the incident could have been a murder-suicide. People began speculating that Barry Sherman actually killed his wife, Honey, before turning on himself. This information was coming out from quote-unquote police sources, but not the Toronto Police Service itself. As someone who uses a lot of different media sources to find the information I'm looking for on cases, I'd like to think, and I'm sure you all would too, that citing sources of this caliber are supposed to be accurate, but clearly not always. The family was obviously quite unhappy with this speculation, and those who thought highly of Barry Sherman refused to believe he would ever do such a thing. It would come out later, at least from my interpretation based on reporting from Kevin Donovan, that the police's search warrants were misinterpreted by these quote-unquote police sources given the language that they used within these reports that indicated that quote, Honey was the only victim in the home. Personally, I'm not sure why police would use this language in a search warrant, maybe due to misunderstandings in the 911 call, Maybe Honey is the only person the housekeeper who made the call saw or the only person that registered in the assistant's mind when they found the bodies. It's entirely unclear. But what is clear is that the family would go on to hire their own criminal lawyer, Brian Greenspan, who assembled a team of detectives, private investigators, and a pathologist to clear up any misconceptions about what the police may or may not have thought that their father did. Brian Greenspan would go on to get a hold of Dr. David Chiasen, who was the former Ontario Chief Forensic Pathologist for over six years, before becoming a senior pathologist at Toronto Sick Kids Hospital. The family received permission for their own independent autopsy to be conducted by Dr. Chiasen, which is much more uncommon in Canada than it is in the United States. But these were unique circumstances, evidently. Dr. Pickup, who had conducted the original autopsies on Barry and Honey Sherman, was there with Dr. Chiasen during the second set of autopsies to show original crime scene photos and compare findings. From the photos and injuries seen, and I suppose upon a second look, they could tell that the Shermans had certainly been bound. The only thing that was unclear this time was if their wrists were tied in the front of their bodies or in the back. But regardless, the injuries on their wrists were recent, and again, consistent with restraints. The ligatures found around their necks at the time of finding the bodies were two leather belts. One was determined to be Barry's, and it's unclear where the other one came from. But Dr. Chiasen was able to determine that Barry and Honey Sherman were not strangled with these items, but instead by something else. With a fresh set of eyes, conversations about ligatures and input from Dr. Pickup, as well as re-examining the original crime scene photos, the results of this second autopsy determined that the murder-suicide theory could be ruled out, and in late January of 2018, Homicide Detective Sergeant Susan Gomes announced this to the public, 
and that in fact both Honey and Barry Sherman were the victims of a violent homicide. A memorial service was held for Barry and Honey Sherman on December 21st of 2017 in Mississauga, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. Thousands of people were in attendance, including the entire Sherman family and those same politicians from various levels of political jurisdiction, such as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ontario Premier at the time Kathleen Wynne. Many people spoke at this service, including Jonathan Sherman, one of the adult children, as well as COO of Apotex, Jack Kay, who reflected on meeting Barry back in 1982 and how Barry took him under his wing in business. But despite all of the kind words shared about the couple during the service, it was when Toronto homicide detectives began searching for a potential motive in this case that they began to uncover the hidden reputation that Barry Sherman had. A reputation that wasn't formally recognized or acknowledged by Prime Minister Trudeau or any of the senior Apotex executives. But it's a reputation Barry Sherman had amongst many other people that he knew. And it's a reputation I've been alluding to this whole time. It's well known and now widely accepted that Barry Sherman's reputation was mixed. People are well aware of the adoration he received by some and the frank contempt and hatred he received from others. For example, although Jack Kay, COO of Apotex, had nothing but glowing remarks to say about Barry during his eulogy, one quote I found from University of Ottawa law professor Amir Adaran stated that Barry was a quote-unquote deplorable human being and someone who made his living off of price-gouging Canadians for what was supposed to be affordable, generic drugs. Barry certainly felt differently about his mission with Apotex, at least that's what the company says, with a statement after his death reading, quote, Dr. Sherman gave his life to the singular purpose of our organization, innovating for patient affordability. But aside from being greedy, Amir Adaran also accused Barry Sherman of shaky and unethical business practices, which I think we've seen already, but especially when it comes to litigations against whoever Barry wanted to challenge, a theme we've already discussed. But little did the public know that Barry Sherman's time in court has been more far-reaching than you can ever imagine. Because of that, he certainly made some enemies in his life. According to one report I read in the Hamilton Spectator, a quote from a former close friend of Barry's, Fred Walks, reads, Barry was involved in big pharmacy on a worldwide basis. His lawsuits pertained to billions of dollars back and forth. When you are dealing with the size of that industry and the amounts we are talking about, you make enemies, and you make enemies on a global basis." Unquote. In a 2018 article I read for Maclean's, Apotex had launched over 1,200 legal action cases in Canadian federal court alone, all at the hands of Barry Sherman. And that doesn't even begin to touch his personal, civil litigations. One case in particular Barry got himself involved in is heart-wrenching, to say the least, and is quite literally a big pharma conspiracy come to life. Shaky and unethical business practices are definitely an understatement, and the greed of Barry Sherman and Apotex almost cost an esteemed hematologist her entire career. Dr. Nancy Oliveri is a renowned hematologist at Toronto SickKids Hospital, and she exposed negative potential side effects for children associated with a pilot drug for a blood disorder called thalassemia that Apotex had bankrolled the testing for. She did this because Apotex and the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital were spelling out one narrative about the potential drug, but her science was spelling out an entirely different story, a story that could prove the drug did more harm than good. When she did this, Apotex threatened legal action against her for breaking a confidentiality agreement, which makes sense. But they also leveraged their $20 million paycheck promise to the Toronto hospital to get them to agree to engage in a smear campaign against Dr. Oliveri. Consequently, the Toronto hospital took the side of Apotex, the big pharma company, instead of listening to the hematologist who was conducting sound science for the sake of patient safety. To this day, Dr. Oliveri is still actively fighting, especially on Twitter, to clear her name and regain her prestige. She has had to accept the title of whistleblower as part of her occupational repertoire, 
all for exposing potentially negative side effects associated with a drug that nobody wanted to listen to while their senses were preoccupied with big payouts. While Dr. Oliveri has spent the year since reaping the negative effects of being on the receiving end of Barry Sherman's wrath, to Barry and to Apotex, this case gets otherwise unnoticed. Barry and Apotex were left relatively unscathed after this large of a corruption scandal. To many independent scientists and other people who Barry had wronged, him and Apotex as a whole were unstoppable, and it has taken fighting tooth and nail for Dr. Oliveri to regain any sort of esteem in her community. Other litigation Barry was involved in includes that between himself and the companies again responsible for constructing his home on Old Colony Road, which I had mentioned. These suits were against numerous different companies, from the architects to the construction company, and it was no sweat off of his back to get anyone he felt necessary involved. However, although I could speak for hours on end about the different court cases Barry was involved with and the different enemies he made along the way, the most famous case of Barry in court is likely the one involving him and Carrie Winter, one of the children of Lewis Winter, whose estate Barry purchased Empire Labs from before selling it years later without sharing any of the profits with his children, including Carrie Winter, despite informally agreeing to do so with the children's mother. The children of Lewis and Beverly Winter were suing Barry Sherman for a billion dollars, claiming that they deserved to be compensated for Barry withholding their rightful 5% shares to Empire Labs back in the day. I mentioned Kerry Winter by name because he has been the most outspoken out of all the children, both during and after the litigation, questioning how one of his own family members could deprive him of what should have been his rightful inheritance. The whole ordeal was especially hard-hitting for Carrie, who would grow up and suffer with drug addictions and mental health issues, likely in part to being orphaned at such a young age, and realizing later in his adult life that he very well could have avoided all of the poverty and suffering he had endured. However, instead of Barry Sherman simply conceding that he should owe Carrie and the other adult children's shares or financial compensation, he instead countersued Carrie. Barry Sherman sued to reclaim an alleged $8 million in personal loans he had lent to Carrie Winter throughout the course of his young adult life. Despite being emotionally unavailable to him, as Carrie struggled with his mental health and addictions, Barry would throw large monies at him to bankroll business ideas in hopes of getting Carrie on his feet. At the time, Carrie had no idea that Barry Sherman had been keeping tabs of all the money Barry had spent on him, or that he was ever expecting to be repaid especially after finding out that 5% of a company that would eventually turn Barry into a billionaire was withheld from him. To that end, Barry says that the kids were too young to benefit from shares in the company anyways, and after so many years, it was too late to claim anything. Too late to claim what was rightfully theirs. Eventually, this suit made it all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, even after the death of Barry Sherman. And although I personally disagree with this ruling despite not being a qualified lawyer or anything of the sort, the Winter children lost and were not entitled to any financial compensation from what would now be Barry Sherman's estate. As you can see, there are clearly numerous different people and groups who may have had it out for Barry. Barry himself even acknowledges this in a book released in 2001 by writer Jeffrey Robinson titled Prescription Games, money, ego, and power inside the pharmaceutical industry. In the book, Barry said that he knows at least branded drug companies are after him and reveals that they have had private investigators tailing him all the time. What he doesn't know, though, is why none of them hadn't just hired somebody to kill him off at that point. He also acknowledges he had many other enemies, a fact that is certainly not lost on us at this point in the story. As you can see, in terms of narrowing down who would have had the motive to kill Barry and Honey, there are many different angles to consider. For Barry alone, there are many people who would have had the motive, and given the pictures of the house were available publicly online that detailed the entire layout, the opportunity was also there. It's possible that Honey Sherman might have been a victim of opportunity. Other people speculate that the couple could have been killed for unrelated reasons, and that Honey was also a target. People substantiate this claim with the Shermans' alleged Zionist beliefs and anti-Palestinian rhetoric. 
I don't know if Barry and Honey Sherman were ever outwardly anti-Palestinian, but there are some people who latch on to this theory simply because Barry and Honey Sherman donated generously to the Jewish community of Toronto. Other people speculate the murders could have been done at the hands of Jonathan Sherman, one of the couple's own children. Much of this pure speculation comes from reported contentious relationships between the children and their parents, but especially Jonathan had some passive-aggressive remarks to make about his father during a eulogy he read at the memorial service. Jonathan says things such as, quote, I can remember literally every single individual occurrence when my dad did father stuff with me. He would come watch me play hockey or baseball once every season or two, but those few games were my Stanley Cups and World Series. Some people think that this is a jab at his father Barry Sherman for never being around, which is further substantiated by another comment made in the eulogy that says, quote, To my mother, you are always such a good sport and so animated. You are my first golf partner and the only witness to my hole-in-one. Well, Dad was there too, but he was buried in his briefcase. Regarding the alleged contentious relationships, Honey Sherman herself admitted in an article for Toronto Life before her death that she didn't think any of her children would be keen on taking over Apotex one day, leaving the next in line to run the family business sort of up in the air. In addition, people find it quite strange that when the Sherman Old Colony Road home was demolished in 2019, that the kids left all of their parents' belongings and memorabilia inside of it to be destroyed. However, I think there is some explanation for all of this, although this is my own opinion. I think Jonathan's comments about his father in the eulogy can certainly be taken as passive digs, but I don't think that a workaholic and mostly absent father is enough of a motive to kill, especially when stacked up against all the other people Barry had slighted throughout his life. In addition, just because none of the kids wanted to take over Apotex doesn't mean any of them would go as far as to harm their parents, despite what some people say online. According to Jonathan, when he tried working at Apotex in his earlier years before fostering a career in business of his own, he just didn't like it. It had nothing to do with his relationship with his parents. But again, I guess we're just taking that at face value. With regard to the belongings left in the house prior to its demolition, it seems more common for ultra-wealthy families to leave personal effects behind than for middle- or lower-class people to do so, according to some anecdotal reports I read. Not that I would know. Before the house was demolished in May of 2019, a self-proclaimed urban explorer broke into the home and found it left almost exactly as it was found back in 2017. This person reported everything from personal notes and medication being left behind to stacks of paper and what seemed like important documents. What this person did is frankly deplorable, to go in and break into a victim's home to snoop around. But that's besides the point. From his perspective and from ours, there's no telling what personal items were of sentimental value to the children or the Shermans, let alone if they were removed from the house prior to its demolition or not. Any quote-unquote important documents that were left behind might not have been so important after all, at least not to the people who loved the Shermans. I think after all that, given the many theories we can conjure up in this case, I think we can leave the children out of it, at least on the basis of these speculation points. Another potential theory I'm inclined to reject is the theory behind Carrie Winter's involvement, that relative of Barry Sherman's who was cheaped out of Empire Labs shares and potentially mass amounts of financial gain before being further countersued by Barry for money that was, according to Carrie, supposed to be gifts. As mentioned, Carrie had been quite outspoken and has conducted multiple interviews where he accuses Barry Sherman of multiple things, including attempts to solicit murder for hire against Honey, which have yet to be substantiated, especially in the wake of Carrie's ever-changing stories. Although I personally think Carrie had motive, and the rest of the Winter children have every right to be resentful and angry about Barry Sherman's actions, I personally think that Carrie Winter seems a bit too disorganized to pull off a crime of this caliber of violence, let alone get away with it. In an episode of The Fifth Estate that covered the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman, Carrie Winter made comments about Barry Sherman and how he felt hurt by his actions, such as, quote, I was betrayed, my cousin hurt me, and now I want to hurt him. He would say things like, quote, 
I would talk about killing Barry, and it was very graphic. He would come out of the parking lot of Apotex, and I'd be hiding behind a car, and I'd just decapitate him. I wanted to roll his head down the parking lot, and I'd sit there and wait for the police. Even further, Carrie Winter has no alibi for the night of December 13th, 2017. As mentioned, he also made allegations that Barry Sherman had tried to solicit murder for hire against his wife Honey on numerous occasions. Given all the allegations Carrie Winter was making in this interview with the Fifth Estate, the producers arranged for Carrie to take a lie detector test on camera, which he subsequently failed. Although I think we all know how we feel about lie detector tests and how they are unreliable to a great extent, thus not being even admissible in court, but when confronted with the fact that he failed the lie detector test, Carrie Winter conceded that he more than likely made up the entire story about Barry trying to solicit murder for hire against Honey, but he's not sure why he did it. Given after this he decided to start being truthful, he did say, quote, I probably had reasons to lash out and do the dirty deed, likely referring to the murders of Barry and Honey. But he also says, quote, I had nothing to do with it. I don't know who did it. Personally, I don't have anything really to substantiate why I feel like Carrie Winter is too disorganized to pull off a crime like this. I think maybe for someone so outspoken and willing to tell stories that are maybe or maybe not the truth, you would think that the incidental truth would accidentally come out during one of his outbursts, and it has not. As far as I'm concerned, no indications of Carrie Winter's potential guilt have ever come out during any of his interviews. And although I think it's reasonable to assume that Carrie Winter should further be investigated to see if he does have any involvement in this case, I'm more than sure that police have already done so. Some people also believe that the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman could have been a professional hit. Given that Barry Sherman was an international big pharma tycoon, I don't think this is too far out of the realm of reality, but some criminology scholars such as Dr. Michael Arnfield, who I've actually had as a professor at one time, say otherwise. According to him, what happened to Barry and Honey is a very far cry from a professional mob hit, but I'll give you some insight into why some people think it might have been one. Although there were quite a few names dropped in relation to this theory, mostly higher-ups, billionaire executives in other industries, prestigious business partners of Barry Sherman, I'm not going to name drop them, but I will say that there was a few people, a few billionaires, one in particular who owed Barry Sherman $100 million at one point, who some people believe might have been responsible for the murders. Some people think that these higher-ups and these billionaires colluded with some foreign mobsters to take out a hit on Barry Sherman. People substantiate this theory, especially in relation to the Italian mob, citing the term incapratamento, meaning a mob-style homicide by ligature strangulation. The way Barry and Honey Sherman were killed was certainly unusual, and according to some of the literature I read, this method of killing is extremely rare, and it's been used in the past as a token sign that the mob was here, and the mob was responsible. Given Barry's billion-dollar international business ventures and tendency for unethical practices, I personally don't think this is a far reach, even though a mob hit sounds so Hollywood, I guess. What makes it even harder to explore this theory for myself, and I'm sure even local police departments, is the fact that it's impossible to know what the inner workings are of whatever beef Barry might have had between himself and any of the potential mobsters involved. Just as easy as it might be to start diving into Italian mobsters and making loose connections between them and Barry Sherman, it's likely even easier to make connections between potential business partners who are disgruntled or feel slighted by Barry. Anyone who had ever uttered a single threat against him, whether to his face or in private, is equally suspicious at this point because we just have no idea. But despite all of this speculation around theories and potential suspects, in a 2019 report by none other than Kevin Donovan for the Toronto Star, he reported that the Toronto Police Service have some idea of what happened, noting that they do have a suspect who has refused to speak with police, but police are not elaborating on who that person is. He said, quote, 
One speculation I have is that there is indeed a suspect, somebody who they'd want to ask questions, who would have material information, perhaps even the person is involved and that person is not speaking. He also speculated that people who police want to get in contact with and are interested in speaking with may have fled the country. To me, this further indicates that it's probably not Carrie Winter who was involved in the crime, given that Kevin Donovan says that the suspect has not cooperated with police. Carrie Winter went as far as to take a lie detector test on the Fifth Estate. He's also been in for multiple police interviews and has been open about his feelings about Barry, knowing full well that some people on the internet will take that as guilt. On the other hand, Kevin Donovan's statements maybe to me substantiate that this is an international crime. Maybe it's a hitman, maybe it's a business partner, who knows. But the statement about the person fleeing the country certainly is interesting. At this point, the most up-to-date information we have about the case came out in 2021, where the Toronto Police Services Homicide Squad released CCTV footage of a potential suspect they had. Toronto Homicide Detective Sergeant Brandon Price was speaking at a press conference when the public heard and saw for the first time video evidence of a potential suspect who was seen walking around the neighborhoods of Old Colony Road the night that Barry and Honey Sherman were murdered. Detective Sergeant Brandon Price said that the suspect spent a, quote, very suspicious amount of time, unquote, in the area around the home at the time the couple was suspected to be murdered, and in the video, it's black and white, but you can see a hooded person walking down a wintry sidewalk with a hat and an interesting gait, which frankly is the only identifiable characteristic of this person, and it's the only reason Toronto police even decided to show it to the public in the first place. As this person is walking, they seem to be kicking up their right foot with each step in a very unique way. And whether that person is Carrie Winter, Jonathan Sherman, an Italian mobster, or any of the other probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of people that Barry had wronged throughout his career, it's totally unclear to us, and evidently to the Toronto Police Service as well. In this same press conference, Detective Sergeant Brandon Price said that they had conducted over 250 police interviews and witness interviews, and over 1,200 tips had been received in the case. He also said that the Toronto Police's Homicide Squad had consulted with over 40 different legal jurisdictions, including the FBI, which makes some people, including possibly myself, speculate that they are seeking international assistance in the investigation for reasons potentially attributable to Barry Sherman's own suspicions that the entire pharma industry was after his fortune and his head, potentially even substantiating the theories about the Italian mob. I don't know. Detective Sergeant Brandon Price said that the Toronto Police Service's homicide squad had received so many videos of the neighborhood and surrounding area on the night that Barry and Honey were murdered. He said that thus far, numerous people in these videos have been identified, all but one, and it was the person with the funny walk, the person who was kicking up their foot, walking around the neighborhood, seemingly going nowhere in particular. Detective Price says, quote, we have been unable to determine what this individual's purpose was in the neighborhood. The timing of this individual's appearance is in line with when we believe the murders took place. Detective Price then goes on to describe the person in the video, stating that they are between 5'6 and 5'9 and a half, and he further posits that the police are quite confident that this person is connected to the scene somehow. And as the press conference rolls on, and Detective Price knows he's being filmed, he looks directly into the camera when he asks the individual to come forward so they can be cleared. Whether this look was intentional or not, to me, it seems to be a signal that the Toronto Police is on to them, and they want the person to know that. But again, it's hard to be certain. The Toronto Police have not been very forthcoming with the details of their investigation, and that is perfectly reasonable. Things are kept close to the vest for good reason and we know that. All we can do right now is wait for further updates. I know I said at the end of this that I might be feeling a little bit more clear on what I think happened in this case. I can assure you I'm certainly not. I don't even know what my real opinion is on Barry and Honey to begin with. There was clearly two sides to them and both of them were equally profound. In terms of justice in this case, they absolutely deserve it though, 
regardless of how dirty they did others in business. I can only hope that the family of the Shermans receives closure in the near future. They've been waiting on answers in this case for almost six years. It'll be six years this December. If there are any updates in this case, I'll be sure to let you know, and you can find out on my Instagram at crimopediapod, and if you want to check out any of the source material I used for this episode, you can find that at crimopediapod.ca. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia Podcast. I wish I had more answers and closure to give you, but I just don't. The problem for me when researching this case is that I had to know when to stop. There are endless Reddit threads speculating on each of the theories, and certainly some interesting deep dives into the Italian mob one. I'm very curious to know what you all believe happened in this case, and if you think it's a solvable one. Personally, I think it's solvable. I think Toronto police have a lot more information than we do, and I can certainly see how certain questions we have in this case can be filled with answers that Toronto police likely already have. But until we hear the whole story, this is all we've got. I'll be sure to keep you updated if anything changes. But until then, I'll see you here for the next episode on April 15th, 2023, and hopefully by then, I won't be sounding sick anymore. Take care, everyone, stay safe, and I'll see you here next time.